Tim, you and I were always talking about risk because she was the beautiful woman we were both in love with, right? The one who made us feel the most special, the most alive. We were always trying to have one more dance with her without paying the price. All those quiet, huddled conversations we had in Afghanistan, where to walk on the patrols, what to do if the outpost gets overrun, what kind of body armor to wear. You were so smart about it too. So smart about it that I would actually tease you about being scared. Of course you were scared. You were terrified. We both were. We were terrified and we were in love. And in the end, you were the one she chose. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason here with Emily and our guest today is Sebastian Junger, longtime war journalist, documentary filmmaker of The Last Patrol in Restrepo, and author of Tribe, The Perfect Storm, War, and most recently, Freedom. The intro that I read came from a piece he wrote in memoriam of his friend, Tim Hetherington, a photographer who was covering the conflict in Libya in 2011, when he got hit by a piece of shrapnel in Misrata and ultimately bled out in the back of a pickup truck en route to a hospital. I've been a huge fan of Sebastian's work forever. I mean, forever. And in prepping for the show, what struck me about the impact of Tim's death is how hard it can be when you're not there. And yet the perspective and the good that such tragedies can inspire, many of which I'm looking forward to getting into today. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. And thanks for reading that passage. I hadn't uh, heard it or thought about it in a long time, but it, it uh, definitely is one that affects me. I've, I've been thinking about it a lot since, since I've read it. And there's just, there's a lot to unpack there, my man. But I, before we get to that, and I want to spend a lot of time on that, I'd love to just kind of talk about your, how, how you grew up or your early, early mentors so that we kind of figure out how you ended up on this crazy journey. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, uh, and maybe this is telling, but I grew up in a very safe, affluent, upper middle class community outside suburb outside of Boston called Belmont, the loveliest place in the world and, and maybe one of the most boring. And I think it gave me you know, my father grew up as a, was a refugee from two wars, from the Spanish Civil War and then when the Germans invaded France. My mother's family goes back to the Pennsylvania frontier and the Ohio frontier. You know, I, I think growing up in Belmont, it made me think, um, okay, well, this is pleasant enough, but it doesn't feel like real life. It doesn't feel hard. It doesn't feel that meaningful. It's just kind of pleasant. And uh, I want to understand what the rest of humanity considers life, real life. Um, a lot of what humanity goes through isn't that pleasant, um, but I wanted to understand it. And, you know, eventually I, well, I wanted to be a freelance writer. I wanted to be a, I decided I wanted to be a war reporter. And there was a civil war in Bosnia in the early 90s, 1993. And I went out, you know, before the U.S. was involved as a peacekeeping force. And I went off, I, you know, I wound up in Sarajevo in 1993, a city besieged by a modern army. So to rewind a little bit, though, you were kind of a, a risk taker of sorts. I mean, your first, you, you were climbing trees, dangerous, cutting them with chainsaws at, at a young age, right? And then your grandfather was also a journalist and your father had fled a couple wars. I mean, what was the mentorship like at home? Yeah. So I, I mean, just to make it clear, um, I was, uh, by my late 20s, I discovered this amazing job of working as a climber for tree companies. So uh, I was taking trees down with, a, you know, on a rope with a chainsaw or limbing them, uh, you know, 50, 100 feet in the air sometimes, you know, work that could be dangerous if you made a mistake. And so, and I did make a mistake. I hurt my leg pretty badly. I whacked it with the chainsaw and tore off the back of it. And 
So, uh, you know, that was that was definitely a, a sort of calculated risk taking. You know, I wear a seatbelt. I drive carefully. I'm, I'm not a, um, you know, sort of adrenaline junkie in that sense. I, the, the risk that I've taken, I've tried to do cautiously and, and with with calculate with real calculation. But that said, yeah, I've I, I've several times been in a situation where I could have easily been killed and I got lucky and I wasn't. And uh, but before all of that, before the war reporting and the tree climbing, you know, what was my what were my influences? Um, you know, my dad was a physicist. He was a theoretical physicist. He was very smart. He was incredibly well read. He spoke English better than any native English speaker that I've ever met. Um, and he imparted to me this sort of the sort of value of both rationality and compassion, empathy. He was an enormously kind man and who saw the worthiness and the value in every different kind of society, every different kind of culture. He was an atheist, but he understood the good that could come from religion at times, the good it could do to, for, for some people. Um, but he was also a fierce rationalist. And, you know, basically a theory that you couldn't test for was just a fantasy. And, you know, ideas that didn't have data were just wishful thinking. And I really grew up in, in that great intellectual tradition. And um, I don't go to church. I'm an atheist. But I, you know, I don't. You know, we can talk about this. But I think my atheism has actually provided me a, a, a very profound avenue for experiencing the world as it is, rather than a projection that, um, you know, humanity sometimes feels necessary to, to cast on what they see. So to jump into that just a little bit, like, when have you struggled the most with being an atheist? Oh, I've never struggled with it. I mean, I, there's no, there's no struggle whatsoever. I mean, I know people struggle with religion, but atheism is a very, very easy paradigm to live with. In fact, there's nothing to accommodate. It's you, you take the world at face value and, uh, you don't try to imagine constructs that you can't see or measure. So the magic of kids being born or, you know, losing loved ones or grief or, you know, they say there's no atheist in a foxhole. That's, that's kind of, that's true in, in my case. And I've, I've been around other, other atheists as well. It's just, I, I've, it's fascinating to me how, how everybody can, can tick. Yeah. I mean, kids are magical. I mean, I don't, I, I don't need God, the idea of God to make them magical for me. They're magical in their own right. You know, I have two children. And I, God wouldn't add to my love for them or my appreciation of them, the mystery of it all. Like would God, you know, like, I mean, and, and if God does add to that for somebody, go for it. I mean, it's, you know, definitely believing in God can be adaptive for some people, for some societies. Um, the mystery of death. I mean, I almost died last summer. Um, I had some very odd experiences in that sort of, we can talk about it in the sort of twilight zone between life and death. I spent quite a while there and uh, saw some very strange things. Um, but the, uh, the idea that the, the value of the physical, tangible world that we inhabit for a brief time, that, that that value comes from something that we can't see and that we don't know exists is just silly. Like the, the world that I'm in is miraculous in its variety and its meaning and in and, and, and its wonderment and in its tragedy. Like, you know, it's like, I, I got a full meal right here just with what I can see in front of me. We, we all certainly do, especially if we're grateful for it. <laughs> so back to your, your dad real quick and kind of this, career push, th this idea that you don't owe your country nothing came as some sort of surprise to you. And I'm sort of curious how in the, the sort of service of war journalism or the, the path that you chose and how you kind of view that as, as 
this is selfish. Like at some level, service is selfish, and you're you're serving in a different capacity. And and how did you reconcile any or any or all of that at at a younger age? Well, you know, I grew up in a in a very liberal environment during Vietnam, and the Vietnam War was um, very poorly regarded by the people around me as I was you know growing up, and and there was the draft, which. Um, obviously, it was contra- controversial policy for America, and it was later rescinded. And then I turned 18, and I got a selective service card in the mail, which was only mailed to 18-year-old boys, not girls. And I, you know, I I thought that you know the draft was over. I was like, what's this? Like a selective service? Like I said to my dad, you know, my dad was a huge pacifist, right? And I said, I'm not signing this. Like, so the government knows where I live in case they need me to fight another Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, that was my like 18-year-old take on you know, American foreign policy. I was extremely simplistic and poor by the environment around me. And my father said, you know, there are thousands of American soldiers buried in, you know, his home country of France um, that liberated the world from fascism. He hated, my father hated fascism. And he and he was a endless pacifist. But he also understood that in keeping with the principles of pacifism, which is the preserving of human life and human dignity, sometimes people must take up arms to stop fascists, right? And which is the unlawful seizing of power, um, the unlawful use of power. And he said, you're definitely going to sign that card. You you don't owe your country nothing. And you might owe your country your life, depending on the war. Now, if a war comes along that you think is immoral, it's your duty to protest it and to go to jail, if necessary, to protest an immoral war. But you don't know that yet. And the war might be moral. It might be moral the way World War II was. You mu- we might need you to, to defend democracy and to defeat fascism in the world. And so you're signing that card. And so when I did, all of a sudden, I felt like I was part of something greater. And then I still had agency. I could still decide that my government was wrong and immoral or not. But it was my choice. And that the idea that my country and that my world, frankly, might need my services and my courage and possibly my sacrifice to preserve human dignity. That was a thrilling idea. And at the end of the day, it was still up to me uh, when my government was right or wrong about those decisions, but I was available for service. And being available for service for a righteous cause at 18 was just like, oh my God, that feels so good. Like, where do I sign? It was an amazing moment. And my father was so right about it. What an amazing lesson (laughs) to receive from him. Yeah. It was. How how did he feel about you becoming a war correspondent? You know, he was my dad was a physicist, and he wasn't that aware of his feelings or didn't articulate them that easily. So I had to do a lot of guessing. I think he was proud of me. Yeah, you know, my mother was definitely worried. Maybe my dad was too, but that was hard to tell. I, he might have been worried. I'm sure he was worried, uh, but I think he was also very proud of me. And you know, he had very strong beliefs about human dignity and human rights, and when fascist armies surround cities and shell them. You know, he had some pretty strong feelings about that, having seen it. And so me going off to document that in my own, I mean, you know, I was a freelance radio reporter in Sarajevo, right? I mean, on the food chain, the journalistic food chain, I was like plankton, basically. (laughs) But I was still part of it. I was still part of it. And uh, and then as my journalism grew and my ambitions, my scope of uh, my ideas grew. Uh, you know, I, I think I played a sort of larger role in that food chain of journalism. Uh, but it, you know, it has to start somewhere. And I think he was 
I remember calling him. I, I I didn't have that much money over there, and I had to buy a bulletproof vest. I remember it was seven hundred dollars, like second hand. Oh gosh! And I called him. And I was like, "Should I buy?" I, he was at work, and I, you know, I went to the post office to put in an international call from the <laughs> post office in Croatia. Dad, like, should I spend you know a third of what I have in my pocket on a bulletproof vest? And you know, he was an amazing, smart, wonderful man. And he said, "I don't know. Like, how would, how would I know? I'm a physicist. <laughs> You're in the war zone. You." I was, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like it's on, this is up to me. Okay. And I bought it, of course. Smart. Yeah. So how did you view your, your kind of role, right? I mean, you're there to report, right? I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. I mean, is, is this a, is this a form of service is kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at. I mean, the world, you know, the world needs information to make wise, compassionate choices about how to conduct itself uh, when faced with the violence and abuse that some governments and some people are capable of. Uh, the most obvious example is World War II. I mean, had the abuses being committed by Nazi Germany, you know, had everyone known everything from day one, had that somehow been possible, maybe we would have joined the, the war earlier. Maybe we wouldn't have waited for the attack on Pearl Harbor. Maybe we would have thought it's within, as human beings and as Americans, it's within our um, purview that we not allow fascism to take over Europe and allow a, a genocide to happen. You know, my father first fled fascism in Spain when Franco took over. It was a democratically elected government. The fascists said the election was rigged and there's only one way to, to correct this, and that's with force, and they took over. And 1% of the Spanish population was executed for their political beliefs against a wall by firing squad, right? The anarchists did some of that, but most of it was done by the fascists. And so my father left Spain with a just loathing of fascism. And he would sort of say the word, he would almost spit the word when he said the word fascist, like he didn't want it in his, the word in his mouth any longer than necessary. More people should feel like that, yeah. if you ask me. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. yeah. And so, you know, he, when he came to this country, he saw it as the, the, the world's savior, you know, like defeating fascism. Like if fascism will never come to this country. He was convinced of that. I'm not sure it's quite as safe from fascism as he thought, but, um, you know, hopefully it is. So sort of at, at a personal level, what was the risk? Was that the drug? When did that become? Because there's a there's a selfishness to this. I, I know this. You the just the pure adrenaline dump, that, and you're just chasing it. It becomes the drug, and you're just more and more and more and more, and then you get sent out to pasture at some point, and you know that's that's it. Or or you don't make it. I mean, that's kind of the the way that it goes. Like when what was that evolution like for you? So here's where journalists. And soldiers sort of, they, they have a, a lot of overlap, um, but they also part ways at a certain point. So soldiers are doing a job that, I mean, combat soldiers are doing a job that's very risky. And one way that humans deal with risk is with adrenaline. And adrenaline can feel horrible and it can feel very in, intense and, and empowering, right? And you can, I don't, I think addictive is the wrong word, but you can come to need that adrenaline experience to sort of feel like you're fully alive. And in fact, living in that world of high risk can feel like the only meaningful existence and anything calm and peaceful is actually wasted time. And you, you, your identity becomes dependent on taking risk. In fact, the way you describe yourself to yourself is I'm a person that's not scared of risk. In fact, I like risk. In fact, you know, watch me go. Right. And I totally get it because there's a lot of journalists like that. And I, you know, I was like that. I mean, I'd be covering wars and I'd be in a situation where there was no combat. I'd be think, what? I'm, I'm a fraud. I mean, this, I'm a war reporter. 
and I'm, I'm drinking tea in some town. Like it's <laughs> the real thing. Of course it's the real thing. I got to get I mean, my $700 out of my bulletproof yeah, vest. Exactly. Like, if it's a, at least one round, I'm, you know, like, I'm a fake. And so it's, and it's, and it's silly. I mean, life happens in all kinds of ways. And, and life is dangerous, but life is also lovely and peaceful. It's all kinds of things, you know. So it was a matter of maturity to understand that it was life is just as real walking through the park with my daughter as crouched in the trenches. There's no difference in reality, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. both as intense and real in different ways and produce different neurochemical signatures in our minds, right? And one's oxytocin, the other's adrenaline. So, But the other thing that journalists do is they're not just doing a job in combat, they're also communicators. They're telling the rest of the world about something that's happening. So yes, I think there is a sort of an adrenaline response that soldiers and journalists get in sort of frontline situations, but there also is a kind of intoxication of of relevance. Like I'm relevant right now because I'm I'm a crucial link in a chain of communication that's telling the world what's happening in real time in Chad or in Minneapolis or in wherever it may be, but it's happening, it's going down. I'm here, I'm telling people about it. And the the, the that role of being a conduit for information for the rest of the world from Sarajevo, whatever it is, becomes intoxicating itself. Um, in a different way than adrenaline. It's intoxicating because suddenly you feel like you're needed, you're important, you matter, you're doing something sort of grand and noble. And and that that the the, the nobility of that endeavor of, of informing the world about a tragedy, that becomes its own addiction as well. And I would say a, a more powerful addiction than adrenaline ever would be. So it's almost like this fourth branch of government, right? I mean, the press and the the tribe that is America, it's it's really necessary. Is that, I mean, as you intellectualize it, the, the, the feelings on the fire bases aside, I mean, I mean, I believe that too, by the way, but like that gives you meaning and purpose in what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I would say, it, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a branch, you know, it's not like a branch of government. It's not paid for by tax dollars. You know, this is private enterprise and, and it's not um, subject to federal oversight, which obviously would be a slippery slope. Uh, the great thing about journalism is that it's actually outside of government control. And which means that they can monitor government behavior. I mean, it can monitor the, the, the military, it can monitor government itself, it can monitor, it can scrutinize the relationships between, you know, lobbyists and politicians and dark money and all that other stuff. Government might not do that to itself, right? So, but, but that, that said, it serves a vital purpose in a democracy because the people need some way of understanding what these very powerful entities are doing in the decisions they're making. And we might not trust, you know, the army or the fire department or the IRS to tell you honestly about its own inner workings. I mean, maybe they'll be honest, but you don't know. And you really need a sort of outside outside actor that doesn't really have an agenda uh, or hopefully doesn't have an agenda that is, you know, looking for the truth. It's, it's, it's central ethos is I want to find out what's true. And anyone who has an agenda and does not have that as their central ethos, just simply isn't a journalist. Um, they're something else. They're a propagandist. They're an editorialist. Uh, they're an advocate, whatever. All those things are fine in democracy. It's, but that, strictly speaking, that's not really journalism. I, I, I kind of bridged this gap a little bit with my background as an intel officer because I felt I what you just described, I felt really important, you know, reporting from Chad, reporting from West Africa, being that link and trying to, you know, tell them the truth. But, you know, being part of the government, I found out sometimes the hard way that, you know, my stuff was either 
you know, overlooked or pieces left out of the intelligence reports. But what what's interesting is what you said is that it is perishable, right? I was felt like I was an expert on all things in Cote d'Ivoire for the three years I was there. But you know, it moved on to the next the next war, you know, the next battle, and it's like you have to start all over. You know, create all those connections and contacts and sources again, and then you know, hopefully recreate that. And, and it's never exactly the same, you know, and like you said, it is, it is addictive in its own way. Um, but, but in a different sense from what, you know, Jason and, and the soldiers that you've been with in, in, in Afghanistan and other places have been. Yeah. I, I mean, that's very much like the job of journalism. I mean, the journalists, you know, they move from, from situations, situations are always war zones, but whatever they're, you know, they get different postings and they got to start from scratch and fill up their little black notebook with names and contacts. <laughs> and I guess it's not a notebook anymore, but, uh, you know, whatever, the vice consul at the American, you know, whatever. I mean, you get you accumulate these names and contacts and experts in each country, and it takes a while to do that. And then you start from scratch again. But then it's also, you know, it's that, that always new endeavor, which is one of the things that's exciting about the job as well, I think. Yeah, I used to always say that I loved my work because I woke up every day being like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's it's going to be a, a little bit of a toss up. And, you know, depending on what's coming through the cable traffic or what's going on the ground, it, anything, I, I could be going anywhere. And I, I love that sort of randomness of it all. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally intoxicating. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I, you, know, you guys are a lot younger than me. You know, if I was you know, if I was, say, in my 30s, I would still want to be doing that. You know, I'm in my late 50s, and I, I don't want to be doing that. Like, I, you know, like, actively don't. There are different things for different phases of your life. And now I'm, you know, I'm an older father, for sure. Um, and I don't think maybe as a young, you know, dad in my 30s, maybe it wouldn't have worked out that well. You know, maybe I would have been getting pulled too much out of my family's orbit. Uh, right now, the last thing I want to do is go out there. I would, the thing that, that the main thing in my life the primary thing is my family and my children. I mean, nothing else even comes close to the arrival of that. That's so beautiful. And I think you're right. I think it's something that, you know, if you had tried that younger, you would have felt very divided in your time. Yeah. But, you know, what we're saying is about the waking up and having it be new. I mean, kids bring that too. Yeah. It's a, it's like you said, it's very, it's very much the same reality that we're living. It's just in a different form. I, I, I knew a guy, tremendous tremendous guy uh, who's passed on, but he, he lived in a very, um, what's a very small place. He lived on Cape Cod his whole life. A little spit of sand, a little sandbar in the Atlantic. It's very beautiful there, but it's tiny, right? I mean, Cape Cod is, you know, two miles wide, you know, at his, at his upper upper lengths. And 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 um, I asked this guy, and he was a, he's a ferocious intellect, right? And incredibly smart and well-read. He was a, he was a, uh, he built chimneys. He was a bricklayer. An amazing, amazing man, right? And a sculptor. He's an extraordinary man. He never left, right? Cape Cod, he never left. He could have done anything. I said, did you ever regret, in his 70s, you know, I said, do you ever regret that you spent your entire life in this such a tiny little place? And he thought about it for like a few moments. He said, no. He said, I've, I learned how to find the infinite in the minute. And that's, that's parenthood, right? I mean, you're in a room with your child. I mean, tell me there's not an infinity in there. You know, if you're not seeing the infinity, if you're not seeing all the, all of the human experience, the whole, all of the pain and joy of the world, you know, like you're, you're missing something. I mean, you're not, you know, go to work on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So kind of driving a little bit more towards the Restrepo and, and Tim and that part of your, your life, by the way, if, if you're out there and you haven't seen Restrepo, I mean, for me, it's, 
like I'm very harsh on war, anything related to war, you know, once you've been, it's kind of, it's not a luxury. It's just, you, you, you don't see things the same. It's like saving private Ryan band of brothers, Restrepo. I mean, Black Hawk down, I also really enjoy, but there's very few. And it's just, it's, it's a, it's a really, really powerful work and all the credit in the world to, to you guys and for the guys for, for having you there. And it, it just, it, it really matters to, to me, to our community. And I think it was just a beautiful piece of work. And so first off, thank you for that. Uh, thank you. I, I, I'm really glad that you liked it. I'm, I'm very, very proud of that film. So what was the, what was the camaraderie like between you and Tim, between you and the guys who were there? I mean, I like, we'll, we'll put it in the notes, but like the picture that Tim got, I think it won picture of the year in 2008 or whatever of the soldier and he's putting his arm up and his helmets. I mean, it's, you know, you've yeah. got the sort of poncho liner up and the sandbags everywhere. And it's a little fog of worry just to go with the film and everything. I mean, it's just a lot of, a lot of feelings there. Yeah. I started this project on my own and Tim came in about four months into the deployment and September 07. And he started filming a month after that. And so we, you know, I didn't know Tim before that. You know, we were new to each other on our first trip over there. And, you know, he saw what was going on. He was like, oh, my. And I told him I was trying to make a documentary. He was like, oh, my God, that would be amazing. You know, so he sort of jumped in, thank God, into the project. And, and we were, you know, instant collaborators and friends, brothers after that. Uh, but, you know, we were new to each other, right? So so it took a while, but it didn't take a long while. I mean, it, what? how long does it take in combat to feel like the guy's your brother? Yeah, exactly. A week? Maybe? Real fast. Like, or bad weekends, you know, whatever. <laughs> right? And likewise with the platoon. I mean, they were come, they were half our age and coming from a different experience in life. They'd gone through boot camp and all that training, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't journalists, they were soldiers. But pretty quickly those differences evaporated. We were able to handle handle our end of the deal and not let them down and not compromise them and you know, in return, they gave us their their friendship and their trust. And and by trust, I mean, not only would we not encumber them in a firefight and cause a problem, but our trust, their trust journalistically, that we would be responsible and accurate and honest uh, with the material we were gathering. And we're journalists in the sense that I defined it earlier. And so, you know, we, we honored that and we wouldn't have done any other thing. So, so, but, you know, but, you know, after a few, you know, Tim and I did five, we each did five one month trips sometimes together, sometimes apart. And so by the end of, by the end of all that, by the end of the deployment, we were absolutely felt like we were part of the platoon. Were we soldiers? No, we, that wasn't our job, but we were part of the platoon. I would have done anything. I would have risked anything to help any one of those guys. And I think any one of them would have likewise done anything to help either of us had we been hurt, had we needed them. I mean, it's kind of beautiful how you can take someone with a, I think you, you describe your father as extremely pacifist and that, you know, passed down to you. You went to Wesleyan, not known as a hotbed of, of <laughs> you know, you know, a feeder school for, you know, uh, you know, the armed forces, not, not so much. Right. And, you know, I think there's something beautifully American about that melting pot that you got and what you were able to, to, to bring back with, with the film. And then, you know, what that inspired after that, because you didn't have too much more time with, with Tim left on, on this earth. And y you guys were making the rounds, so to say, I mean, there's, there's some pictures, you know, I, I just go back to your life. Cause I've kind of been in various stages of this, right. You're in war and then you come back and it's like this parade at the Oscars. And then, you know, then some things started to happen that would 
challenge you as, as a person, right? Yeah, yeah we, uh, we were supposed to go on assignment to Libya a few weeks after we were on the red carpet for the Oscars. You know, we didn't win, but we were nominated. And um, the last minute, I couldn't go uh, and uh, for personal reasons. And, and Tim went on his own. I remember that his last email to me was, tomorrow morning, I'm taking a boat to Misrata. You know, Misrata was a besieged city. Uh, down the coast from Benghazi, where he was, and surrounded by Gaddafi's forces, and the rebels were sort of holding out. It was this awful street fighting, and I said, listen, man, I wrote it back. I said, be careful. Like, Gaddafi's got an air force. The only way out of there is by boat. That place gets overrun. Um, The first thing they're going to do is accuse you of being a British spy, and spies get shot. You know, like, just be careful. There's no way out. And, uh, you know, within 36 hours or so, he was dead. He was hit by shrapnel along the front line. Not a big wound, but it caught his, uh, the metal caught his femoral artery and he bled out in the back of a rebel pickup truck racing for the Misrata Hospital. Um, uh, in the back of the pickup truck uh, was a Spanish photojournalist named Guillermo Cervera. Uh, he was holding, holding Tim's hand as he died. Um, and I, I later got to know Guillermo and he's a dear friend of mine now. Well, he went on the last patrol with you, right? Yeah. So, the, you so know, what I'm getting at is all the things that, that would come, the second and third order effects of, yeah. of a lot of this. Yeah. So well, the first order effect of that was that um, I was in a you know marriage that I didn't realize at the time, but it was sort of coming unglued. I was coming unglued. I'd had a lot of reaction to the combat I'd been in that I, I didn't know. Uh, it wasn't handling very well. And then suddenly Tim died, and I just felt this avalanche of uh, uh, not just grief, grief, grief you can deal with, of guilt. Like, he died. I didn't. I should have been there. It should have been me. I should have been there to help him. Uh, on and on, stuff that didn't even make sense. But it reminded me suddenly of stuff that things that soldiers had said out of Restrepo about guys that died, and they, they blamed themselves of it. Like, what are you talking about? You got a bullet in the forehead 300 meters away at the top of a hill. How is that possibly your fault? And, you know, you'd watch them spin this bizarre logic it's not even logic that would make it their fault Mm -hmm. um all of a sudden i was doing that with tim and i really went down a hole a very dangerous hole and um i was dangerously depressed and a lot of things changed my marriage ended i mean a lot of things changed and um but one of the things that i did was an idea that tim and i had had on a train ride down to dc to try our to try to sell our film restrepo to national geographic which ended up happening. But on the train ride down, I, I just looked out the window the whole time. And, and at one point I said, Tim, man, we can walk this whole thing. Like there's a, along the whole way, there's a dirt bike trail or there's a you know maintenance road or a cornfield or a, a, you know, a, a junkyard or whatever. You could thread the needle here. You could walk the entire railroad line. It's all sort of no man's land uh, along railroad lines. And, you know, there's a homeless shelter. I mean, these guys, homeless guys living under tents and all kinds of craziness. I was like, listen, man, we can walk this. You could never walk it on the roads because the cops would pick you up from vacancy, you get hit by a car, whatever. Railroad lines, it's wide open. Like you do whatever, clearly you can do whatever you want. And so we decided to do it. And then he got himself killed. And after that, I picked a couple of guys from Restrepo, a couple of soldiers that we'd known and were close to. And Guillermo, the photographer that was with him, I said, I want to do this trip. And so we set out and, uh, you know, it's just this no man's land. It's totally illegal. Um, the cops were looking for us. They, they had a helicopter in the air at one point trying to find us one night. 
you know, we were pumping water out of creeks, you know, for drinking water and cooking over a fire. And we walked right through the ghettos of Baltimore and cornfields and uh, the suburbs. I mean, the railroad line goes right through the middle of everything. And we were, you know, we had, we were dependent on society because we every few days we'd buy food. We'd walk through town and get some food and load up and keep moving. But it was also illegal. So we had to sort of stay out of sight. And it was this weird marginal existence that I found like completely intoxicating, like the game of coexisting on the margin of society and not getting caught. Uh, that to me was like, you know, brought out the 10 year old boy in me. I was like, oh, yes, like this. I can do this for a while. So, you know, veteran suicide is a huge thing. PTSD is a huge thing. There's a lot of people that are out there who are taking their lives. I mean, and, it, and it's not, it, it's brought on by some degree of depression, right? And, you know, I, I'll ask you about, you know, I, we're definitely going to get into the last patrol and, and freedom and all that to, to go back though, right? Because you, you have this perspective and you have this ability to connect to people, you know, I mean, like the personal side, I mean, as, as I understand it, you know, you're, you'd been trying to have kids for a really long time and your, your wife had a miscarriage Yeah, and you're dealing with that. And then your dad dies. I mean, I'm getting like really sad goosebumps right now, right? To think about the human emotion that's going through, and and your your friend bleeds out in the back of a fucking pickup truck in some in in a shithole in in Libya, and and you have to play the kind of game about you know because I've I've been there. You play the game about I if I would have been there, I could have I could have pressed, I could have saved him, and and you know, like. How, I mean, that's, it's really, that's, that's really bad. It was very bad. And I remember realizing, um, I mean, the way, what it felt like was, and you know, my, my first marriage, I mean, now I'm in a wonderful situation, two amazing kids, amazing spouse. And my first marriage was to a very good person who I really loved a lot, you know, and she loved me, but the marriage didn't work. It just didn't work for a variety of reasons. And we ended the marriage on very, very good terms. We're still good friends. I mean, just so that I just want to be clear about that. Um, it was the right, we did the right thing in ending the marriage. But before that, before that happened, I felt like I was sort of in this bubble of like bulletproof plexiglass. And I could be right next to someone I loved. And I would like reach out to touch them. Right. And I just was like, what's going on? I can't reach them. They're, they're right there. But I, I, they're, it's like, they can't hear me. They can't see, you know, like, I, like, I mean, trapped in this bubble and and it was the most alone feeling. And the people I love the most, like I couldn't reach them. And I remember thinking, um, I remember thinking like maybe Tim was got lucky. Like he died before life got tragic, before life got disappointing, before his dreams failed to come through. I wanted to have a family, you know, and it, you know, we weren't the my my first marriage, we weren't able to. And it was um, you know, just heartbreaking for both of us. And my my wife, my previous wife has written about this, so I feel okay talking about it. You know, her, uh, you know, we came, I brought her back from the hospital left her miscarriage with the phone ringing, and that was the news that Tim was dead. I mean, it happened at the same time. It was that pregnancy that kept me from being over there and might have kept me alive. Think about that. Like, the burden that would, I mean, you know, like, so, yeah, I sank like a friggin' stone after that. And um, it took a long time to climb out of. And, you know, the, this walk the last patrol was part of my climbing out of it you know it's like and i knew as a former athlete i was like if you do something and you make it hard enough like you will emerge like if you like eventually the athlete will emerge from the muck you know they're like okay well this shit still works 
like I'm still here. I am. I'm covered in mud. I'm exhausted, broken, but you know what? I'm still here. And and I, as an athlete, I had that feeling. And the last patrol was a way of doing that, not in the sort of solipsistic loneliness of the marathon runner. I used to run marathons. I was a miler in high school and college. A really fast one. <laughs> yeah, I ran four twelve for the mile. Yeah. Which is, That's is, fast. Is good. That's a very solipsistic world, right? You know, the last patrol was with these three other guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just, it wasn't, but it wasn't combat. You know, combat is also, there's this sort of moral baggage that comes with combat because people are getting freaking killed, right? Like, oh, that's your therapy is going to a place where people are killing each other. Are you kidding? How twisted are you? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you can send yourself on a weird trip with that too. The last patrol was completely innocent, you know, slightly illegal, you know, I <laughs> uh, could live with that. And, uh, yeah. and, um, and no one had to die. No yeah. one was killed for this, right? It was like morally free. And, and it was exactly what at least I needed. And I think the other guys needed as well. You know, Sebastian, when I read the book Freedom, yeah, it was before knowing the backstory of what was in the backdrop of your life at that time. And yet I had this sense through your writing that you were healing with every step, you know? And and the fact that you didn't do it alone I think is really telling and speaks to your, the work that you've, you've written about through tribe as well. And say an extension of that, that you still needed to depend on each other. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, humans are not to be like anthropological about it, but there, there is that level to everything, obviously where, you know, we're humans are social primates, you know, we get our safety, our physical safety. And as a result, our emotional safety from the proximity of others, others that we trust. Right. I don't mean Grand Central at rush hour. I mean, other people that we trust and that we would risk our lives for because they would risk their lives for us. And that's a platoon in combat. You know, that's a family. Ideally, that's a family in a modern industrial mass society. It's hard to it's hard to find that group that you feel that kind of allegiance to. Uh, I grew up in a suburb, you know, like. And so I think that's sort of what ails us in a sense. That's what tribe was about. Well, what did I do in the last patrol? I, I gathered three guys and I had four guys, and I was like, okay, we're going to put ourselves in a situation where we need each other, right, on every level. And, you know, one time we were walking through a 110-degree heat index, and, you know, I don't name anybody. I don't say who did what because I don't want us as individuals to be the point of any of this. So one of us started to experience sort of heat failure. You know, our packs were 60, 70 pounds, not crazy heavy, but, That's heavy. you know, heavy enough to break you after a long day or after a long month of walking. And, you know, one of our, one of us started to fail in the heat, incredible heat. And, and so one of the other guys said, all right, listen, man, I'll take your pack. Don't worry about it. So now we doubled up, you know, 100, 120, whatever pounds it was. We were going a little bit light at that point. That's what you do. Right. And that reciprocal relationship makes everyone feel extremely good. Are you free from the, the, the expectations of the group? No, your group is free. I mean, it's like, as I said in the book, 400 miles, most most nights, we were the only people who knew where we were. That's a form of freedom. There's lots of definitions of freedom, but that's definitely one of them, right? But were we free from the expectations of the group? No. It was the agreement with the group. It was an agreement between the individuals in the group that allowed the group itself to be free. Mm -hmm. But the individuals in it were not free, but people don't want to be free. If freedom, complete freedom is terrifying. It means you're alone in the friggin' universe. Yeah. Like, come on, that's a terrifying prospect. Well, isn't this balance? I mean, you've been living it, right? I mean, I, I think you you gave up 
war journalism because of Tim. That was your line. And you said, I'm not going back. Yeah, I didn't want to do to everyone I loved what Tim was, I'd suddenly realized was doing to everyone he loved. It seemed like it's selfish. All of a sudden, war reporting didn't seem noble. It seemed selfish. And I think there's an evolution to that. And, and you know, that led to, in you're, you're the expert on this, but in, in Native American societies, I mean, they will literally beat themselves. They will self-flatulate in order to grieve, in order to do something to help them with the coping of, of, of loss and grief. And, and that's, you know, they're still part of the tribe. Yeah. And, and yet this is what the tribe does. And, and this to me, that's what I thought of when I thought of the last patrol. And meanwhile, while you're on the last patrol, you're thinking or writing or starting to formulate what became tribe. And then you're, you're moving on later to, to freedom, tribe very much about tribe, freedom very much I mean, freedom when, with, from an American context, to me, it's kind of like the, the rugged individualist and you're taking that head on. And so the, the point is, is you're living this, you're living this balance out throughout these really hard and difficult times in, in life. And is it conscious? Is it subconscious? I mean, you know. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I'm not a good enough chess player to think 10 moves ahead and, and, and sort of see where my life might be going. But I think I am fairly good at knowing what I need right now. And I and at that point, you know, my marriage at this point, when I started The Last Patrol, my marriage was definitely in the process of ending. I mean, you know, it was about as good as a divorce can get, but it was enormously painful. And I knew what I needed. You know, I needed some brothers around me and I needed to be in a weird place where our, our competency, our capability, our strength, our vigilance um, allowed us to to exist out there and to continue safely. And, you know, that was what I needed. And I need, and I didn't, I didn't want to do it alone. I wanted to be with some guys that I trusted. I mean, alone out there on the tracks would be terrifying. It was scary enough with, you know, the four of us. <laughs> and so I, I think I had a good instinct, you know, and, and, and like we kept doing it. Like I mean, the last time I was out there was like a couple of years ago with one guy, you know, I kept doing it in different forms with different individuals just because we we loved it so much out there, you're completely self-defining, right? I mean, it's a weird, dangerous environment. There's no cops out there unless they're actively looking for you. These these trains are incredibly dangerous. You got to be very careful, and the engineers will call you in when they see you. So you got to get very good at sensing when a train is coming. And I don't mean hear, and I don't mean see. I mean sensing. And you can get there. You can get. I don't know what it is. What these trains are doing a mile out, where they're altering the world in some way that you can start to. And you just step into the underbrush and watch that sucker go by. And it like they, that, like that we were do, pulling that off was so satisfying. And it did me an enormous amount of emotional, psychological good right when I needed it. It, it felt it felt to me that you were reconnecting to a very old ancient history by doing this. You know, like and you talk about this, about the Native Americans who walked through there, the the, the slaves fleeing the plantations on the Underground Railroad, you know, and then just, you know, modern day people who are just vagrants or on the move, nomads. And, you know, the humans have been doing that <laughs> for a long, long time. And I, I really, I really responded to this idea that, you know, walking is this form of independence and, and a freedom in itself. Like you can just get up and move. And I don't, I don't know if people think about it that way as much as th right. maybe we should. Well, yeah, I mean, that goes to the, the, the heart of a, of a crucial human development about 10,000 years ago. Some societies started using agriculture, which meant they were rooted in place. 
they were subject to a, a, a ruling power, to a, to, a, to a ruler that could be quite abusive. They didn't have a lot of choices because once you've invested years in digging your irrigation ditches and clearing the, the rocks out of a field, you know, you can't just pick up and say, I don't like your leadership. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll take my business elsewhere. You really can't do that. And the accumulation of, of capital, of food slash capital, allows for the hiring of professional armies and the control of territory and the imposition of like top-down power, right? So you get all that sort of hierarchical stuff that, that can be very abusive or very productive. I mean, Western society is based on that model and it's an amazing society, right? I mean, the thing invented our technology, there's just this sort of ease of our existence. I mean, it's totally extraordinary, right? Uh, as I said last, you know, last summer, I almost died and, and I'm only alive because of the technology that was produced by this amazing, you know, enlightenment-based, data-based, rational society that came up with these things to keep people alive. But that's only part of humanity. The other part of humanity 10,000 years ago was like, you know what, maybe not. I think we'd be, I think we'll be poorer, but a lot happier in the crags and hills of the, you know, sort of wild country with our sheep or with our hunting bows, the nomads. Mm -hmm. You know, so the interesting thing about nomads is that they can be quite egalitarian in their leadership because nomads, by definition, are carrying with them. I mean, first, it's hard to accumulate wealth if you're mobile, but also you're carrying with you all the tools you need for survival. So if a family or a clan or an individual doesn't like the abuse of leadership that they're subjected to, they can just leave. You can't leave with a wheat field. You can leave with your sheep, right, or your your hunting bow. And so it makes hunter-gatherer and more generally nomadic society quite egalitarian. And leaders lead with the consent of the led, uh, which is not necessarily true in a Western society or any kind of top-down empire. And as a result, the poorer society, and invariably that's a nomadic society, as a result, the poorer society often pities and looks down at the wealthier sedentary society. You know, we're the descendants of, of wealthy sedentary agriculturalists. But it's really interesting. You look at some of the of the myths and the songs and et cetera of mobile societies, and you can just smell the smell of sort of like <laughs> condescension in there. I yeah. There was a tribe named the Yamut, a very, very fierce uh, horse culture, like horseback riding pastoralist culture in northern Iran. And they had a song, a saying about the agriculturalists. I don't, what is it? I don't have a mill and willow tree. I have a horse in court. I will kill you and leave. And that, uh, you know, that sort of epitomizes the arrogance of the mobile. You know, you wrote about this in Freedom, like walking through the poor communities. You were often asked if you needed water or if you needed help. And yet, on more affluent communities, people wouldn't engage you. Would, they would be more likely to report you to the authorities, which I think is yeah, I mean, aff- really indicative of what you're talking about. You know? Yeah, I mean, affluent people have more to lose and they depend on a, a reliable social organization, the police, to sort of keep them safe. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's known that affluent societies broadly have a higher rates of depression and suicide in, in, in poorer societies for all the stresses of poverty. The depression rate of depression is lower, and the rate of the rate of suicide is lower. And the theory is that poor people have to collaborate for their survival, and that collaboration, just humans interacting in a collaborative way, feels very good to everybody. And that collaboration buffers people from 
you know, psychological troubles in a way that doesn't happen in an affluent society where everyone's living in their little house in their, in their suburb. So on this last patrol, did you, I mean, the book is about you found what you were looking for, but what, what, what's the, what's the postscript to this? You know, I mean, the, the interesting part, the, the end about, I was going through a divorce and so was someone else and nobody talked about that. And, you know, you, you'd reached this point and you just, it's like Forrest Gump was ready to stop running. And I, I don't think there was just a light switch because there's so many hours of thought <laughs> that, that are easing you into something, right? Well, you know, during the, the, you know, so the trip, we did it off and on over a year, right? So it wasn't all one long 400 mile walk. We did it multiple trips, 50, hundred miles at a time. Every different season, we froze, we roasted, you know, we got drenched, we got, you know, whatever, got parched, all of it. Cities, suburbs, fields, woods. We, I didn't do a lot of thinking on that, right? I mean, I, I mean, didn't thinking about my personal life. I mean, the point was I needed a respite for, from my personal life. I think we all did. And most of my thinking was sort of like tactical level. Like, how, how do we manage this environment? How do we not get hit by trains, caught by the police? Where are we going to get clean water? Like, how are we going to stay out of sight? We're in a, we're in a you know, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we're in a populated area right now. Like we're going to be sleeping next, right next to some guy's backyard. How do we stay low enough so that they don't, we don't get spot, you know, whatever. Like it was that level of thinking. I mean, I, you could say it was almost sort of animalistic, but in that, I mean, listen, the, the human brain is an amazing tool and quite a burden. And it, we, you know, we put ourselves in a place where that sort of ruminative part of our minds was not needed and we were too tired to indulge it anyway. So at the end though, I mean, the thing about solutions is that the solutions can become their own problem, their own addiction. You can become dependent on the solution like you were dependent on the thing that the solution was a solution for, right? I mean, you have to be very careful about solutions because you can wind up dependent on them. And what I didn't want to do is you know, live a, a life of constant movement where I, you know, I just never had the time or energy or reason to think more deeply about, you know, my existence and the people I loved and what am I going to do with my time on earth? You know, I just, I just wanted to make sure not to do that. And, and, and if you're uh, open to it, you will know when you've arrived at the end of anything, end of the marriage, end of your military career, end of the long walk, end of your use of alcohol and drugs and you know whatever end of anything like you will know when you've arrived at the last day the last mile the last campsite the last bottle of whiskey you know and i've arrived at the end of all those things i know exactly what it's like and i i recognized it in in connellsville pennsylvania sitting on uh, by the by the river the yokogany river goes through connellsville it was a very prosperous you know mill town a long time ago it's fallen on hard times it's desperately poor now and, um, you know, nobody even has a backyard above ground swimming pool. I mean, everyone on a hot day, the people of Connellsville walk into the, the industrial river that flows through their city. They take the heat off in that river. And so that's where we wound up. I mean, it's horrible what high heat and a lot of walking and great weight due to the bottoms of your feet. I mean, it just turns them to oatmeal. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, I, we had a little further to go in my minds. And I'm like, you know what? I think I just realized we've reached the end. I don't need to go that next 15 miles to this special spot I wanted to see. It's like, we're here. We're done. Time to go home and start the other class patrol of encountering my my life at home. And I did that. And I did it well. I think. And, and the other 
men that you were with, that was the, they were fine with that being the culmination as well. Oh my God. I think if I said, come on, man, we're pushing on another 50 miles. I think I might have Something very unfortunate would have happened to me somewhere in the hills of Western Pennsylvania. Oh, gosh. Oh, no, we're all broken men. I mean, you know, I mean, we were all just annihilated. So uh, I, uh, it was the it was the right choice. And, you know, none of half of us, two out of four were getting divorced and nobody mentioned it for the entire trip. And, you know, it was time to start, you know, for all of us, it's time to start thinking about our lives, you know, and I think we all kind of knew it. You, you wrote a really moving passage about just the walking and the cadence that Jason's going to read, but it, it, you know, our, our community does this, you know, um, on a regular basis. We, we set up these simulate these sort of safety net, but push you out of your comfort zone sort of, uh, um, trials. They're not as long as what you've done, but you know, 50 milers, we've done it. So it's, they'll get a taste, but I think you just, you nailed it. A a 50 miler from Utah beach to to Omaha through Point de Hoc and all those places. That's, that's about as pure as it gets, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Um, so anyway, long story short is we respect someone that wants to strap a rucksack on and go 400 <laughs> miles. And in, in dealing with this, what I find interesting is that you say you were ready to start thinking about your lives. So I'll read this and then ask you some, some about that. <clears throat> Cadence can only carry you for so long before your body starts to fail, but even that's not the end. Sometimes you enter a great blank place where a whole hour can seem to go by faster than some of the minutes within it. And the loyal dog of your body trots along as if the entire point of its existence is to expire following your orders. It's a kind of fugue state that is weirdly easier to resist than the thin weakness that can creep up unexpectedly and petition you all morning long with its cheap little deals. Take a break now and walk more later. Back off the pace and walk a little longer. Unless you confront this little traitor head on, it's only a matter of time before you will start to listen. Drop a discarded steel tie plate into your pack for a few miles or take the pace up a notch. Once I felt so weak that the only thing I could think to do was start running. I mean, that's like outsourcing your problems to Dr. Payne right there. You know, (laughs) hey, Dr. Payne, I got some stuff for you. Here you go. Let's do it. You know, to a lot of people, that passage would just seem like, well, there's an in-man who needs some psychological help, right? But I think to, to... People like you guys, a lot of people in the military, and certainly, certainly a lot of athletes, they recognize it. They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, they would recognize what I'm saying as true, and not just true, but immensely helpful at points in their lives. So how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile this kind of artificial, I don't have to go do this quest for freedom, this this 400 miler, these, these kind of things that we do to ourselves in order to be able to think about our lives, right? I mean, because nobody wants to be with their kids at the playground staring at their phone because they're so distracted and you're not doing anything well. And the, I mean, these are the balances that we all face in life. I mean, how do we, how do we tackle those? Well, I, I mean, if you want to bring up phones, I, I mean, I have a flip phone. I would say the best thing you could do in terms of being distracted and anxious and depressed and an involved parent is you take your smartphone Right, and you go down to the nearest lake, <laughs> and you see how many skips you can get out of it. <laughs> That's my advice. I love about. that. I'm close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really close. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, you know, I understand they're amazing tools, right? And, and but they have created their own need, right? I mean, they solve certain communications problems, but 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 mostly 
most of what they're used for is a need that they themselves created and convinced you that they're necessary for. And actually, they're not. And uh, the downside of these amazing devices is that they're, you know, humans are obsessive and addictive and, you know, like the game of chess or whatever, or like combat or like all kinds of things that sort of have no boundaries. Like they're, they're infinitely complex. So, so you can plunge into them. Music is the same way. Musician, you can plunge into that world and never emerge because you're never going to reach the bottom. Right. And, you know, likewise, social media, like once you get involved in that trap, like, I mean, the strange thing about it, you know, email and all that stuff is the more you do of it, the more emails you answer, the more texts you answer, the more social media you deal with, the more that you create. And then you have even more to deal with. There is never there's never an endpoint. It's the sort of opposite of freedom in the same way that quicksand is the opposite of freedom and that the, 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 the very actions you undertake to escape it actually embed you deeper in the system. And so it's a, in my opinion, it's a very dangerous thing. We, you know, like my children, I mean, we just, they don't have no access to screens and they won't for a very long time. And, and I, you know, I, I have a flip phone and it's in my pocket most of the time, but the, your, your, your greater question was how do we, in this life that we, that's it's amazing, you know, in many ways, amazing life that the society has constructed for a lot of people. Um, how do we sort of return it to something real? In, in a sort of athletic sense, something real, something hard, something where, you know, there are real physical consequences to decisions, something that feels like a sort of animal level of freedom and autonomy. For most of human existence, that's what life was, right? I mean, for hunter-gatherers, for, say, the Apache in the Southwest, and they're a major part of my book because they maintained their autonomy almost until 1900 by being very poor and, as a result, extremely mobile. And, you know, they survived as a free people almost until my grandmother's lifetime. So life was very hard. You ran a lot. You fought a lot. You thought a lot. Uh, you, you know, you, I mean, there was no, you didn't have to contrive a situation where you, you, you got to experience your physical competence, right? We do, right? That's the downside of this amazing society is that if we want to feel like badasses in a sort of animal sense, we're going to have to go off and do something fairly contrived. So what? It's better than not doing it. It's pretty clear that that kind of physical use of your body and your mind is a very, very good for your mental health um, and your and your physical health. So I like, each, I mean, some people ride bikes. You know, I don't know, whatever. You don't have to walk along railroad lines. You can walk the Appalachian Trail. You can do a lot of pull-ups. I mean, whatever it is, but you'll know it. I mean, you'll know when it's helpful to you when you're doing it because you'll feel differently about yourself. So what? Just do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is possible to intellectualize everything way too much, right? Like to apologize for the fact that we don't have to live like Native Americans or like, I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of downside in, in those cultures as well. I mean, and yeah, yeah. all right. So let's, let's get to the next chapter in, in your life, because I think a lot of your perspective I mean, your, your, your life has almost come from this, the, the down, the down of 2011, 2012, 2013. I mean, you, you had to fight your way through that. And what I love about your story is it, it, there, there is kind of a happy ending, yeah. not that it's over, <laughs> but, but there's this idea of, you know, how you, you found even more, more meaning on top of like the actually, like you almost had to start over, reinvent yourself. Yeah, I, I, I think I had to be prepared to let everything that was reassuring to me until then, let it be prepared to let it go. I mean, financially, you know, where I lived, what I was doing, 
how I earned my living. I mean, every, I mean, everything was up. I had to make everything available for letting go of. And when I did that, something changed. I stopped acting. I stopped acting out of sort of fear. It's scary to leave your marriage, right? I mean, even a marriage that's not working, it's still scary. And and you could be all kinds of courageous in combat, not that I am, but you could be, and still terrified of getting divorced. You know what I mean? I mean, there's those like depths of like loneliness and and alienation that can be way scarier than any bullet. And you have to be willing to say, okay, well, then I'm just going to experience loneliness for a while. Okay, then I'm just going to be whatever. Then I'm just going to be scared for a while. All right. That's what it is. You know, and when you sort of accept like that, then you really can start making healthy choices. And um, did you did you ever think about ending your life? Mm, I thought, no, I didn't. I thought that Tim had gotten lucky for a brief while. I thought Tim had gotten lucky and that I was going to have to follow through on the tough, the really tough part of life. This is to watch all of your hopes and dreams not happen. And, you know, for me, that was, among other things, having a family. And, uh, but no, I never thought about actually taking my life. But that thought that Tim was lucky, the lucky one of the two of us, you know, he died at the sort of in his ascendancy to enormous sort of nationwide grieving, you know, like, wow, that's a Viking funeral right there. Like, well done, sir. You know, like, I mean, uh, I'm going to have to see this thing through to the end, you know, like, uh, well, well, that's, that's a way to go out. And that's a dangerous thought. That's not a good thought that no. And I knew that. And, you know, I, I was talking to someone, a therapist pretty intensely about all of it. And I was surprised, you know, I, I was surprised. I was severely depressed for a little while. Did you, did you take medicine? Was there other stuff that you were, I mean, no, I mean, I, you know, partly, I mean, depression, if you think about it, evolutionary terms, all these, you know, depression's adaptive. I mean, depression, you know, arises in a situation where you're in danger and laying low is the best thing you could do. And, you know, PTSD, all that stuff, you know, these are adaptive behaviors up until the point where they're chronic and you can't get out of them. But for a little while, they're adaptive. And, I, you know, I was depressed because my life was freaking depressing, right? If I'd taken, I mean, I wasn't in danger of suicide. That's a different thing. I didn't think I was. I certainly wasn't. But my life was sad, right? It was heartbreaking, right? I mean, I you know, and if I had sort of insulated myself from the reality of that, I might not have changed it, right? I might have been able to stay in a marriage that wasn't working. I might, you know, like pain drives you to a solution. And, you know, I did some pretty good drinking in that time, frankly. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I did. But, you know, like if you drink your way through your problems, eventually you're not going to solve your problems because drinking works, right? I mean, I was a happy drunk, you know, I mean, I was like, Feeling bad and have, have three or four or 10 whiskeys and now I'm feeling good. And, you know, it's a, it's a short-term solution that I don't think is necessarily unhealthy. It's not a long-term solution because it allows you to not experience the pain that will eventually be the motivator for improving your life, right? And, you know, I haven't had a drink in six years. And I, you know, I wasn't anything close to an alcoholic. I just had a, you know, unhealthy relationship with alcohol and, I, and it was diminishing me as a person. So I just stopped drinking. So how did it... I mean, I want to get to the happy part of the story, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, cause I think you've earned it, man. I mean, you've earned it. I mean, I had the good sense to, um, recognize when I met my wife to recognize someone that would constitute a really, really healthy relationship and love. I mean, love is an amazing feeling and you can, you can experience like real love for people that aren't necessarily a healthy thing in your life. I mean, you know, humans are complex and 
in my marriage right now, it's very loving and very healthy, you know, and, and, uh, and as a result, we have two very, very healthy, loving little girls. So, I mean, the, the happy ending is me talking to you right now. I mean, that is the happy ending. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure in my thirties, if I would have recognized that quality in my, in my wife, or maybe she wouldn't have either back then. I don't know. But at that moment when I met her, like it was instantly, and I mean, instantly clear what the, what the potential was for this relationship. And, you know, neither of us, neither of us looked back. And so you you have a four and a half year old or a four year old and one and a half year old. Four right? plus and one and a half. Yeah. Yeah. How much chaos is it? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, we live in a, you know, like basically a one room apartment and, uh, in New York city. And yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I mean, it's, it, it's crazy if you, it, as long as you hang on to the illusion of control, right. Yeah. You sort of like <laughs> and go with it. It just what's happening. Like, wow, the apartment is insanely messy right now. Like, don't play. that's just, I don't know. You know, I mean, as, as you get older, acceptance is um, a very powerful tool for getting through things that, you know, might be difficult. But I mean, I know this about pain. When you fight pain, it hurts more. And when you literally, when you breathe, I mean, women who have given birth know this, you know, when you breathe and, 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 and don't fight the pain, make it part of what's happening right now it stops being this adversary. It becomes something you can kind of work with. And I think there's a profound truth to that for a lot of things about life. So you got you, three women, and you, you got a dog in, in your apartment as well? They, they, well, yeah, she was here for a while. She died. Daisy died. Oh, man. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. Thank you. She, she was with me. you on the... Yeah, because I mean, we were... I'm, I'm a dog person very much. I mean, to me, you're the expert, so you tell me, right? A, a tribe, the definition is you, you share food, you share defense, right? The most basic operational like yeah. level of a tribe is a man or a woman and, and their dog. I mean, you will do everything for each other and, and you just become this kind of being together. I mean, your souls are just linked. I mean, as I say in the book, God, you know, God's great oversight. <laughs> yeah. God's great oversight is that dogs don't live as long as men and or women, obviously. And God's other great oversight is that men don't move as fast as dogs. And what we could all get up to if those two things, if God had only thought to make those two things happen. I mean, I mean, the trips you could have, the lives you could have with a kind of dog partner for life. Oh. I mean, think about Oof. it. <laughs> the, the amount of loss that you yeah. would experience, I mean, man, like if seven years or 10 years can do this to me, <laughs> imagine what a lifetime could. Yeah. Uh, are you guys going to get another dog? Oh, maybe eventually. I don't know. We want to go overseas when the girls are old enough. So yeah, that, that's problematic. Uh, uh, we want to go to Africa. I, you know, I was in Liberia during the war and we went back there um, a year and a half ago before my, my second daughter was born for a couple of weeks. And I want to make the whole world their school. And we want to make the whole world their school. Mm -hmm. And that'd be hard to do with the dog. Yeah. So, um, I guess I, I just got one more, one more question for you. What's your, what's your advice? I mean, I would say to your daughters, to my kids, to us two sitting right here. I mean, you take all the work that you've done and all that you've given, I mean, a great service to, to so many of us and not to deal with, you know, legacies and all that, because I hope your best work is in front of you. I hope you write, you know, I think you talked about pace or pulse. I'm sorry. You know, you're going to think about writing that based on your your most recent near-death experience, like, I hope you keep enjoying what you're doing because we get a lot out of it. 
and and not in terms of a legacy or anything though, but but like what's your what's your advice to the next generation? You know, it, it depends on what the, the the problems are that they may be facing. Uh, you know, I, personally, I think there's a environmental crisis happening in the world that have, eventually has to be addressed. I think there's a, a crisis of democracy in this country that I think has to be sorted out. So I, I don't know how to advise about those things. What should someone do who's who's 18 right now, right? And they're like, I want to make a difference. Think about when you were 18 or when I was 18 or 22 or whatever. Like how, how can people find this path? And it, it might, you have to have some skin in the game. It might cost you a lot, but yeah. it's going to be worth it. How, how should they look at tackling the life's challenge like that? So making a difference means that, you're, that what you're doing is benefiting others as it benefits yourself, right? If you want to do something that just benefits yourself, if you, if you want to, if you want to make a hundred million dollars on Wall Street, I, I got it. personally no problem with that, right? It, it, it's just that that person might be at risk of thinking that they never made a difference, right? So if you want to make a difference, it's going to mean foregoing some of your some of your personal interests at least a little bit. Uh, you might be, a, I mean, there's a million ways to make a difference. You can be a firefighter. You can be a you can be a, a, a school teacher. Be a doctor. I mean, you can whatever. I mean, there's a. I mean, there's an infinity of ways to make a difference. You'll know it when you when you see it, right? And uh, if that's something you want to do, people make a difference because they're in a context of society, of a group, of a community, of a tribe, of a neighborhood, right? I mean, you're making a difference in some kind of group. So the first thing to doing that is to make it clear to yourself and others that you see yourself as part of a group, right? How do you do that? In a modern mechanized society, 330 million people in this country, how do you do that? One way is, you know, you join, you volunteer to serve in your nation's military. You shouldn't have to carry a rifle to serve your country. There should be other ways as well, and there are a million other ways, but it, it is one way to do it. But, you know, sort of more prosaically, like if you're just you know, a person, I mean, how, if you're 50 years old and you're living, you know, in the middle of America, and how do you feel like you're part of this country? Such a glorious thing to be part of. And I would say there's three ways that are kind of neat, symbolic ways of understanding you're part of a greater entity. And then there's more meaningful things you could do. But just for starters, like, let's go with the symbolism is can be very powerful, as any religious person will tell you. Symbolism is can carry a lot of water. So I almost died last summer. I bled out. Um, I lost 90% of my blood and they barely saved me. 10 units. They put 10 units into me and brought me back. Uh, while I was in that twilight zone, I was talking to my dead father. A dark pit opened up underneath me and I was getting pulled into. The last thing I said was to the doctor was, you got to hurry. You're losing me right now. Because I, 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 I can feel it. Right. They saved me. Right. A miracle of Western medicine. But really what saved me initially was 10 units of blood from 10 different people who I'll never know. So what can you do to be part of this nation? Give blood. Just for starters, give blood. Blood unites everybody. Rich, poor, white, black, Republican, Democrat. Blood doesn't make any distinction whatsoever about any of that nonsense. It's just human. And it makes you part of the human race. And I owe, I owe the universe 10 pints of blood. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting to it. Right. I mean, I'm donating. And you know what? Donating blood feels really good. Um, the other thing is vote. When you vote, it means that you need your country to act responsibly and your country needs you to be to participate. And 
It makes you part of this amazing democratic endeavor. A lot of the world doesn't get the chance to vote. They don't have the right to vote. You know, and finally, serve on jury duty. Your peers need you, right? Like, without jury duty, one person decides the fate of another person. That's intolerable in a democracy. That's a monarchy. That's a dictatorship. So serve on jury duty. And you don't do those three things, you will feel like you're part of something. And then from there, you want to make a difference. Your ability to do that is only limited by, limited by your imagination. You'll know it when you see it. Sebastian, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed it. It really is an honor to talk to you guys. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. Sebastian is back to his studio apartment with his three girls, his two daughters and his wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just you and me in here. What'd you think, Sudi? Wow. Yeah. You read his work and hear his, you know, his bio, all that he's done. And it's a little intimidating. I have to say, I was a little nervous, but he was very approachable and very generous with his time and words. I think the, the work he's doing is really critical to, to our society. And, and I see it playing out in, in the things that we're trying to do here at GORUCK. And I also see it, I see the potential for his message to really, to really make a difference in, in the areas of our society, which I think are hurting, you know, it's, it, he come, he's coming at it from a very interesting angle. Like he said, he, he came from a liberal background, you know, Northeast, Wesleyan. It's yeah. literally one of the most liberal <laughs> schools on planet Earth. And yet, look at the trajectory that his life took. Yeah, I mean, it's he, great. He, he saw war firsthand. He reported on it. He got to get close with veterans without being a veteran. That's unusual. And then, you know, suffered a lot of loss. But then uh, he's able to communicate it. That's, I mean, this is what's so beautiful is that... there. A lot of people go through these types of things, you know, these struggles, right? But when you get someone who goes through it, who is also a storyteller, it really takes on, uh, you know, a wider form. And I think that's a real gift that he gives us. So I'd listened to a couple other shows that he'd been on recently, and they're, they're well worth listening to. I mean, he was on Joe Rogan, he was on Tim Ferriss, he was, he's been on several other shows and he talked at, at length about his near death experience last year. There's he says a lot of great stuff, right? The Tim stuff really stuck with me. It really stuck out to me and it's not something that he's the really, Tim his friend who lost Yeah, Tim his friend who lost off. his life. I mean, I left a lot of stuff out. There's a lot of great stuff that you can get from reading his books, you can get from watching his movies and 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 listening to his other podcasts. I just I really wanted to kind of, I don't, I don't know if humanize him more seemed like a right way. I just, I wanted to kind of peek behind the curtain just a little bit more than. Well, that's what we do here, right? Yeah, we we want, we want to talk about who he was as a person, how he grew up and, you know, what were the, the things that motivated him or, or made him make the choices that he did and how he's, you know, reconciled them. I, I guess the challenge when you have someone like Sebastian on who's, very smart and very, very seasoned at these kinds of things is you get very comfortable with, I mean, there, there's the press sheet that came and there's a lot of questions on there, right? Like here's yeah. questions for thought, you know, and, and I, they're I read good questions. they're really good questions mm -hmm. and they're very sort of thought provoking. Mm -hmm. Most of those you can get in, you can get from reading the book. 
I, I just, you all get to tell us what you think, how we did, but I really enjoyed the humanity. Yeah. You know, another, another interesting thing about Sebastian Younger and his writing is that it's very accessible. It's not 500 pages, you know, it's not, there's not a lot of words you have to look up, you know, and, and yet it's still very, it, it can reach a wide swath of people. Yeah, another fun little fact I forgot to ask him about. So he still hunts in pecs, two fingers. Are you sure? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, of course his books are shorter, right? I mean, but it forces a clarity of thought, I'm sure. I just, you know, there's there's all sorts of stuff. It's just I dense mean, I, writing, yeah. So anyway, th this one, this interview is a little bit different than some of the ones that he's been he's been on recently that I've, that I've listened to at least. So hope you've enjoyed it. There's a lot more to talk to him about. Maybe sometime we will. We, we didn't get into women that much. We didn't get into native American cultures that much. I really wanted to, there's a book called empire of the summer moon that talks a lot about th those kinds of cultures. That's really stuck with me. I mean, tribe was so much focused on the honor in, in those cultures, which by the way, the special forces crest is the native American arrowhead. I mean, I'm like, we, we as a society and warriors have taken a lot from that. And yet there's, there's a lot of contradiction to that, mm -hmm. to that honor as well. I mean, there's rape and there's torture and there's just, you know, all everything that goes with it. And, and Sebastian talks at length about a lot of those things. Well, he, he writes about them, but he, he talks at length about them. And, you know, if we had another couple hours, we would have really dug in. Yeah. But. I, I think it's worth, really worthwhile listening to his book. I, I actually read and listened to it at the same time because I don't retain things as well if I don't read them. But I loved hearing him read his own book, you know, in Freedom, because you, it really kind of takes you takes you there. And I, and he, and, you know, he talks about, he talks about these things that are very relevant in our society today. And yet they are still steeped in, in the sort of ancient history of, of humans. Yeah. And so the interesting thing is his life's in a very different place right now than this, the last patrol and that he's just leapfrogging in terms of perspective. And it's, it's a nice ride that we all get to be on and to, to read his work and to watch his work and stuff like that. So if you've enjoyed this, please tell a friend. How yeah. do you want to end it? Well, go, go get the book Freedom. Yeah, go get the book Freedom.